Ezekiel chapter 13, verses 1 through 16. Ezekiel 13, 1 through 16 is where we're going to begin. It says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle on the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination? Whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and see lying visions. Therefore, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord God, precisely because they have misled my people, saying, Peace, when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash. Say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. There will be a deluge of rain, and you, O great hailstones, will fall, and a stormy wind break out. And when the wall falls, it, will it not be said to you, Where is the coating with which you smeared it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will make a stormy wind break out in my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger, and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. And I will break down the wall that you have smeared with whitewash, and bring it down to the ground, so that its foundation will be laid bare." When it falls, you shall perish in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus will I spend my wrath upon the wall and upon those who have smeared it with whitewash. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who smeared it. The prophets of Israel who prophesied concerning Jerusalem and saw visions of peace for her when there was no peace, declares the Lord God. Now, if you remember from last week's study, we looked at how God was speaking through Ezekiel against the false prophets that were not only in Jerusalem, but also in Babylon. And tonight, they go, he goes into much more detail and actually kind of excited to show you some of the stuff that, that jumps off from this section of Scripture. We see Ezekiel going into more detail, speaking against the false prophets, both in Jerusalem and Babylon. And if you look back at verse number four, God describes them in a very interesting way. He describes them as jackals among ruins. And as I kind of meditated on that description and thought about it for a little bit, an interesting picture came to mind. I don't know how much of you know about jackals, but jackals actually show up when someone else has already done the work. The jackals come in after someone else has done the, the, the destruction, if you will. And when jackals come in, do they come in to help or do they come in to get what they can get out of it? And he describes the prophets, the false prophets, as jackals among ruins. In other words, if you remember from our study previously, God was bringing this destruction and judgment on Jerusalem because of their wickedness. Now, as we looked at earlier in our study, he had two main purposes for why he was bringing this judgment. One of them was for purification and repentance, that they would respond appropriately to when God says, I'm bringing judgment, and they would repent, and he would purify them. And then if they didn't respond appropriately, it would ultimately end in destruction. So God was the one doing the work here in Jerusalem, and the jackals, the false prophets, came in after God had begun to do this work. Because at this point, remember, they've already had two groups go off into exile. 
They've already had in the first part in 605 B.C., Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, and those guys be taken off by Nebuchadnezzar. And then later on in 597 B.C., we got Ezekiel and the 10,000 that were taken into captivity. And these people have come in amidst the ruins, and these false prophets weren't in it to help anybody else. They were really in it for themselves. See, the reason the prophets would prophesy peace when there is no peace is because they were seeking the approval of man. They do this by falsely making the people feel better. Put a bookmark here in Ezekiel. Go with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. You're going to see a lot tonight as we get into this study how there's a lot of parallels between what happened at that time in Israel and what's happening now in our world. And we're going to cover a lot of that tonight. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, listen to verses 1 through 4. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Look closely. Paul says, Timothy, I want you to preach the word. And if it means you need to reprove, reprove. If you have to rebuke, rebuke. You can also exhort and they should encourage and challenge as well. But you need to do this because there's going to come a time when people aren't going to want to hear what the word of God has to say. They're not going to want to hear about the fact that there's a judgment coming on the whole earth. They're not going to want to hear about the fact that it's not going to end up getting better and better and better like a lot of people try to teach. That the church is going to transform the world and eventually there'll be all this righteousness on the earth. That's not going to happen until the millennial kingdom. And between now and then, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And he says they're going be people that don't want to hear that and they're going to try to gather around them preachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. So in come those preachers. They're jackals among ruins. They actually, the jackals, are they in there to help the people? They're there for their own selves. But what they think they found is, if I tell the people what they want to hear, they'll like me. And there's a lot of preachers out there today that are saying things that aren't true to God's word, don't line up with the scriptures, but they're filling their churches because the people like to hear that. I use this illustration, though. You parents, as you raised your kids or are raising your kids, if you decided, I love my kids too much to discipline them or correct them, you're really not doing that because you love them. It's because you love yourself. The reason you're not disciplining them is because you don't want them to be upset with you and you want them to like you, you're really doing it because you love yourself. And it's not an accident that God calls these false prophets jackals among ruins. Feel-good preachers who make people feel good instead of preparing them for what is to come actually are not, they're in it for themselves, not the people they preach to. Go to the book of Jude. I want you to look at verses 11 through 16. Jude's in the middle of a section where he's describing these false preachers. I'm going to just jump to verse 3 real quick. Go to verse 3, Jude, verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, 
ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and begins to talk about these types of people. Jump down to verse 11. He says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Let's just stop real quick and break those down. I want, I'm, by the way, this is a Bible study, so I'm going to ask you some questions here, see if you can give me an answer for these. He says, when he says they walked in the way of Cain, what does he mean when he says these false preachers have walked in the way of Cain? Exactly. He didn't do the sacrifice God wanted. In other words, he did the religious outworkings, but his heart wasn't in it. Very good. Then it goes on and says, they've abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Does anybody know what Balaam did? I'm sorry? He took payment for profit. Remember, Balaam was the one who Balak, the enemy king, said, hey, why don't you come and stand over this hill and curse Israel, the Israelites? And God said, don't do it. But Balaam was offered a lot of money and he had to go through that whole process. And finally, God says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to let you go, but you only say what I have to say. So when he goes, Balak thinks that he's going to curse Israel and he just pours this blessing on Israel. He gets real mad. But then he takes him and says, well, let me take you over here to another area and have you curse this section of Israel and again, blesses them. But if you put the whole of scripture together, you'll find that what Balaam actually did, though, was he taught Balak and those other enemy nations, if you can get them to fall into sexual sin, that will cause them to be distanced from their God because God has said, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you don't obey me, I'll curse you. And it was Balaam that taught the enemies to say, just go in there and mix among them, teach them about sexual immorality, and they will be cursed because God's already said he'll curse them if they do that. And why did Balaam do it? For money. Was he in it to help the Israelites? Or was he in it for what was for him? They perished in Korah's rebellion. Korah's rebellion, remember, is the group of people that kind of rose up against Moses. And God had the earth open up and swallow them. But, oh, look at the description in verse 12. These false preachers are hidden reefs at your love feast. Some translations say stains at your love feast. But a hidden reef, what does a hidden reef do? Tears out the bottom and eventually sinks the ship. They're shepherds who feed only themselves. They have the appearance of being there for the flock, but they're really in it for themselves. Folks, let me say to you, there are a lot of preachers out there today who love the attention. There are a lot of preachers out there today who are not in it because God called them. They're in it because they want the approval of man. They like the fact that their name is on the sign. They like the fact that their picture's on the billboard as you drive down the highway. They like the fact that their name is on the bus. And you got to be careful. They're shepherds who really are only feeding themselves. And then they're described as waterless clouds. If you're a farmer and you want the land to drink up some rain so your crops can be uh, growing and you see the clouds come, you'll be excited, aren't you? But what does it say? Waterless clouds swept along by the winds. And then the cloud shows up. And what does it give you? Nothing. Gives you nothing. Had the appearance of giving you something, but it gave you nothing. Same thing in the description of the next part. Fruitless trees in late autumn. That's what time you're supposed to harvest. But you get there. And there's nothing. They're twice dead, uprooted, 
Wild waves of the sea, casting up foam to their own shame, wandering stars for the whom gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, Following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So how are we going to know if a preacher is a false preacher or preaching the word? I already gave you the answer. Is he preaching the word? Is what he's saying match up with the whole of Scripture? We're going to go into some things tonight that I just need to, to kind of give you an idea of what we're talking about. But hang on, we'll get there in a little bit. The scripture then goes on. If you go back to Ezekiel 13, look at verse 9. It says, because these prophets, quote unquote, false, they're really false prophets. Because these, quote unquote, prophets prophesied from their own hearts and not from what God had said, even though they added the words, thus says the Lord, God promised three forms of judgment for them in verse 9 of chapter 13 of Ezekiel. Again, I'm going to say it to you. This is all because they prophesied from their own hearts and not from God, what God had said Even though they said, thus says the Lord, God promises three forms of judgment here in verse 9. He says, my hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. Here's the first part. They shall not be in the counsel of my people. By the way, these false prophets, what did they want to be? They wanted to be leaders in Israel. They wanted to be the ones who speak to Israel, teach Israel, counsel Israel. They wanted Israel to listen to them because they wanted the attention that you get. When I was uh, years ago doing a pastor's conference in in, uh, Haiti, uh, I was blown away by how many people were in the ministry just because of the ministers in Haiti are looked as special. They wanted to be called reverend, but they were only in it for the attention that they would get. A lot of them didn't even know their Bibles, but they loved being called reverend because there was so much poverty there. A part of how God's designed the church is that the church was supposed to gather together and share with their leaders. So these people became pastors so they didn't have to work and people would then pitch in and feed them and bring them their money. And there were many that were in the ministry for that. But he says, they're not going to be in the council of my people. Then he also goes uh, into a second part here. He says, nor will they be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel. Now, this is actually pretty important. And I want to take some time to show you from Scripture how important this is. Being counted in the register of the people of Israel was extremely important, not only in that day, but also in the years that are still yet to come. And I'll show you what I mean by that. Put a bookmark in Ezekiel. Jump back to Ezra. Chapter 2. Now, I'm going to ask you a question in a little bit that I'll tell you the Tuesday night group didn't get. So, here's your chance to get it right. So, be, I, I didn't give them the heads up that I'm giving you. So, pay close attention to what we're going to be reading in the next few verses and different passages because I'm going to give you a quiz. In Ezra chapter 2, look at verses, verse 1 and then jump to verse 59. It says, Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. 
They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. So now we know what's going on here, what we're reading about. Here in this section in chapter 2 of Ezra, after the captivity in Babylon, there's going to be a group of people that go back into the land of Jerusalem. This is the account of who did during that time. Jump to verse 59, though. It says, The following were those who came up from Telmela, Telharsa, Cherub, Adan, and Immer. They could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nakoda, there were 652 of them. Also of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, and the sons of Hakaz, and the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and, was, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult the Urim and the Thummim. So here we see in this account that as we, we jumped from verse 1 to all the way to verse 59, if you were to go back and look, it would list all the people of Israel that came back and whose family they were from and how many. I mean, it's in great detail. I mean, it doesn't say, well, there were so many that all came back. It said, oh, no, not only were there this many that came back, this many from this family, this many from this family, this many from this tribe. It's very, very detailed. But then it gets to 59 and it says, oh, but there were others who weren't able to prove that there were descendants of Israel. They couldn't prove their heritage, their family line. And there were others who couldn't prove they were priests. They were there in Israel, but all the benefits that come to being a true Israelite weren't theirs. And it says, even those who were trying to serve as priests, they couldn't eat the most holy food until a high priest came and cast the lots, if you will, the Urim and the Thummim, to determine whether God said yes or God said no about them. To show you how important this is, because I'm laying a foundation here, go to Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter 7. It's the very next book, by the way, if you don't know, and that's okay. Look at verses 5 and 6. Nehemiah says, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. These were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. By the way, does that sound familiar? That's word for word. Verse 6 is almost word for word. Chapter 2 of Ezra, verse 1. Oh, jump over to Nehemiah chapter 7, verses 61 through 65. It says, The following were those who came up from Telmela, Telharsa, Cherub, Adon, and Immer, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel, the sons of Jeliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 642. Also the priests... Of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. They sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until a priest with Urim and Thummim should arise. Folks, you do hopefully remember that the Bible says that every word from Genesis to Revelation is God-breathed. 
And it's no accident that Ezra, in his account of what was, happened in the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple and all that stuff, and Nehemiah in his account of the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the walls and all that, that they both had the exact same account of how they kept track of who came back, what family they were from, and the genealogies and where their descendants he was is extremely important. Does anybody know why? It's kind of cool when you see why. Well, first off, they weren't supposed to marry outside because God was definitely trying to keep a true, pure people for his purposes. They needed to trace Jesus back to... This is definitely a part of them being able to trace Jesus all the way back. It shows what land they got and what area that they were to go back and what was to be theirs. There's more. Keep going. These are all great answers. There's the answer you're going to find is in Psalm 69 in Malachi 3. Go to Psalm 69. By the way, I haven't asked you the quiz that Tuesday night didn't get right yet. So keep paying attention. Psalm 69, look at verses 17 through 28. Now, as I read this, I'm going to ask you also, this isn't the question yet either, but I'm going to ask you, who is the prophecy talking about at the very beginning? Hide not your face from your servant, verse 17 of Psalm 69. Hide not your face from your servant, for I'm in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. This is Jesus talking. This is a prophecy about Christ. Oh, continue to listen to what Jesus says next. Let their own table be, the table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Lest their eyes, sorry, let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp become a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Jesus says, these ones that mocked me and rejected me when I came, not only don't acquit them, he says, blot their names out of the book of the living, which means they're going to die. And then he makes an interesting statement. He says, let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Why would they use the term enrolled among the righteous? Okay, but why the term enrolled? What is enrolling? If you enroll, you're registered, right? Your name's written down. You are put in a, an, an accounting. What? You're in a book, but it's not just a book of life. It's recorded. Recorded. That's a great way to put it. May they not be written down among the righteous. What is this writing down thing? Oh, go to Malachi chapter 3, and you're going to see how this all ties together. 
Last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3. Look at verses 16 through 18. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. These ones were written down. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Folks, all the way through Scripture, God has been keeping track of the ones he's been given righteousness to the the nation of Israel. The ones he's declared righteous because of their faith in him and his provision for their sins. And all along, remember when Elijah said to God, I'm the only one left. God said, chill out. I know there's 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. All throughout history, God has had a remnant. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 11, there's always been a remnant chosen by grace. And folks, God has been writing their names down. And when God says to these false prophets, you're not going to be in the council of my people. You want to be a leader? You're not going to be a leader in my people. Oh, and not only that, you won't be counted in the genealogies of the people of Israel. It didn't mean just that they weren't allowed to go into the land and be counted there. He says, on that day when I make up my treasured possession where I have written down the names of all the people that are going to be my Israelites, if you will, in the millennial kingdom, your names won't be there. You want proof? Go back to Ezekiel 13 and look at the third part of the promise of their judgment. He says, They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. Here's my question for you. Here's the one I've been threatening all along. Did the people that he's referring to here, are they the ones referred to in Ezra chapter 2 and Nehemiah chapter 7 where they came back and they couldn't find their genealogy? It's a yes or a no. No is right. What did he say? You're not going back to Israel even. So there were some that went back to Israel. They had trouble proving their genealogy. Things were going a little truck. It's kind of like they were vetting them before they could cross the border into their country. Um, don't get me started. But, but these people won't even get to that vetting process. God said, these false prophets that are actually pretending that they're helping the people of Israel, they're telling them what they want to hear, peace when there's no peace. They're really jackals among ruins. They go when someone else has done the work, and they're really only in it for themselves, and they're really not helping anybody because they're seeking their own benefit. And, oh, by the way, they want to be leaders? They're not going to be counseled. They're not going to be in the council of my people. Oh, and you know what? They won't be counted in the genealogy, not just in the days when they go back into, into Israel, but also in the eternal count of the genealogy because they're never going to enter the land of Israel again. They're either going to be killed during their final captivity or in the captivity they'll die there. These people won't be in what I have next for Israel. They won't be a part of it. They were written out of the will. Pretty good way to put it. Well, they did. They wrote themselves out of the will. Now, folks, this is a big deal. This is a huge deal. Because much of Israel's future blessing is tied to the land. It's you can't deny it. 
Much of Israel's future blessing is tied to the land. Why do you think the world is having such a bellyache over that piece of property and over how big it's supposed to be or not supposed to be or dividing it and making part of it this nation and part of it Israel and whether or not Jerusalem can be where the embassy is? Why does the world care? Oh, that's because the ruler of this world is the one who hates God and he knows he knows the scriptures. He knows what's to come. That's why the demon said to Jesus, are you going to send us to the abyss before the appointed time? Revelation hadn't even been written yet. They knew what was coming. They knew what was coming. Go to Ezekiel chapter 20. Let me just give you a little taste of what the scripture said about the importance of what's going to happen in the land of Israel. Ezekiel 20 verses 33 through 38 Starting in verse 33, God says, As I live, declares the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. And I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out from the countries where you're scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face as I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt. So I will enter into judgment with you, declares the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. I will purge out the rebels from among you, and those who transgress against me, I will bring them them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. When God brought the nation of Israel into that land the first time, Did he determine who got to go in and who didn't get to go in? In the same way, he's going to do that to the nation of Israel. This is a prophecy to the nation of Israel. At the end of the tribulation period, he's going to gather the Jews that have been scattered everywhere, but he's going to have them all pass under his rod, and he's going to determine, you go into the land, you will not go into the land. You'll enter the millennial kingdom, you won't enter the millennial kingdom. Oh, but keep reading. Look at the promise for those whom God gives righteousness. Verse um, 39. As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go ahead, serve every one of you your idols, now and hereafter, if you will not listen to me. But my holy name you shall no more profane with your gifts and your idols. For on my holy mountain, the mountain of height of Israel, declares the Lord God, there all the house of Israel, all of them, shall serve me in the land. There I will accept them, and there I will require your contributions and the choicest of your gifts with all your sacred offerings." As pleasing aroma, I will accept you. Sorry, as a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you've been scattered. And I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel, the country that I swore to give your fathers. And there you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves, and you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake. Not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God. He's promised, I'm going to gather you, and I'm going to bring you back into that land one day. Jump over to Psalm 37. If you remember, about the first of the year, I challenged you, if you were interested in it, to take Psalm 37 and just really begin to meditate on it and put it into your heart. 
because there's so much that I really felt that God was saying, which is going to be very necessary for us as believers in this coming year, 2017, that we would really need a lot of what God had said in Psalm 37. And if you haven't done it yet, please, I mean, again, as God leads you, if it, don't do it because Jim said to, but there's so much here in Psalm 37 that I want you to get, not just read it, but get it in your heart so that you could quote it and God can bring it to your remembrance. I did this with my wife and my kids. We started right the first of the year, and I had them read it and study it. And I've had meetings with them individually. Sometimes as a family, we talk, but otherwise, times riding with my kids alone. And I'd ask them, what are some things God showed you from Psalm 37? And it's been amazing to see my daughters bring out their journals and share the things that God had showed them in this chapter, stuff that I hadn't even seen. And it was so encouraging to see the Lord speak to my kids in that way. But I'm going to show you one of the many things, but just one of the many things that God showed me as I've been meditating on Psalm 37 for this year. I couldn't believe how many times God kept saying, for the righteous, I'm going to give them the land. In Psalm 37, look at verses 9 through 11. It says, for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more, though you will carefully so look carefully at his place. He will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. By the way, does anybody realize when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the meek shall inherit the earth? He was quoting Psalms. He wasn't preaching a brand new sermon. He was just taking the scriptures that had been there all along and put them together. Oh, jump down to verse 22. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Look at 29. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. 34. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt, exalt you to inherit the land and you will look on when the wicked are cut off. Folks, You've got to understand, I hope, and have you been enough to the Revelation study and this far along in Ezekiel, the scriptures are very clear that God is going to give to the nation of Israel, the land of Israel. And for those of us who are Gentiles, we're going to rule and reign with him on the earth. And he's going to give us parcels of land as well to rule and reign with him. Folks, back in the garden, God gave Adam and Eve dominion. It was given to them. You're in charge. You get to call the shots. You get to name the animals. God didn't even name his animals that he created. He gave dominion to Adam and Eve and said, you, you, you name them. You're in charge. But because of sin, we gave up that dominion and gave it over to somebody else. And he's in dominion for, not, for now. But when Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom, he's going to be removed and put into the abyss for a thousand years. It's going to be that awesome time of righteousness. But at the end of that time, he's going to be loosed. Jesus is going to defeat him himself. And from that point on, there's going to be a new heaven and a new what? Earth. There is a promise of future property. Doesn't that sound pretty cool for those of you that are renting? Wouldn't that sound pretty cool that you're going to have property of your own? Verse 18, and it says their inheritance will be forever. 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 For eternity. What he gives us will be forever. I don't think it's sunk in enough yet, but how we live in this life will determine our future reward. Well, so what's that going to be like? All I know is this. The Bible keeps promising land, 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 land. And for the Israelites, he said to those false prophets, you want to pretend to be leaders in Israel? You're jackals. You're only in it for yourself. You're not going to be in the council of my people. 
and I'm not going to have you counted in the genealogy, and that means you don't get in the land. You miss out on all that he's got down the road. Ezekiel said, actually God said, that whenever people put up a wall, the false prophets would whitewash it. Remember how we read that in the verses we looked at, how they, whenever they put up a wall, the, 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 the false prophets would whitewash it. In other words, whenever someone actually began to believe in a coming judgment and begin to prepare for it, or to take, seriously the false, take it seriously what God said, the false prophets would try to pretty it up. And as I kind of meditated on that section, it jumped off the scripture at me. Whenever God says something, and somebody comes along, actually, so let's back it up. Whenever God says something, and someone actually starts to seriously consider it, and then someone comes up quickly and says, yeah, he doesn't really mean it that way. Relax, you're taking it a little too literally. Who is really the one speaking? Satan. Go with me to Genesis chapter 3. Look at Genesis chapter 3. You want to talk about whitewashing it. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So what happened here? She took seriously the word of God, started to put up that wall between her and that tree she wasn't supposed to eat from. And Satan came on and said, let's pretty it up. It's not as serious as you think. Let's soften it. Go to Matthew chapter 16. Now, as you're turning there, let me set the stage right prior to what we're about to read. Jesus has turned to his disciples and he said, who do men say that I am? And they listed a whole bunch of different people that they thought, the people thought that Jesus was. And he said, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, under the control of the Holy Spirit, said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Johnson, because flesh and blood has not opened your eyes. By the way, you do remember that, right? Simon, son of John, that's Johnson. We're going to make sure we remember that. That's an important part of scripture. But he said, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood has not opened your eyes, but my father has opened your eyes. Oh, and earlier when I first met you, I said, you're Simon, and one day you will be Peter. Now Jesus says, and you now are Peter. He had made that transition. God had declared him righteous because God had opened his eyes and he was a believer. But look at what happens next in verse 21 of chapter 16 of Matthew. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's, Peter's intentions were good. But who was really speaking through him when he said, you don't have to go die? Satan. Folks, there are a lot of people out there today in Christianity. I'm not saying they're not saved. But Satan sometimes will speak through fellow believers. When God speaks to you and convicts you of something and shows you something in his word, and then another believer comes and says, he didn't really mean it that way. You don't have to take that path. Why don't you go down this road? 
They may not even realize it, but it's Satan speaking through them. I could take the time to show you in the scripture how this one prophet, a very famous prophet, an amazing prophet, was told by God to go proclaim a prophecy and then don't go back the same way to your house. Go a different way. And if anybody asks you to eat with them, don't go. So he goes and he makes this prophecy. The king there says, hey, stay and eat something. He says, no, God told me not to. And on his way back, another prophet comes out and says, hey, God told me that you can eat with me. And the guy goes in and eats with him. What happens? He was killed. God had a lion come out and kill him. Didn't eat his body, just killed him, and then just sat there next to him. Why does God allow false prophets? I mean, he's one day going to judge them. And their judgment's going to be severe, the Bible says in the book of Jude. And that, what, that you don't even want to be in their place on that day. But why does he allow it? To see whether or not we will listen to him. We have to know what he has said. Why did that first group of nation of Israel not get into the promised land? Because they knew what God had said, yet they listened to man. Folks, Stand firm. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 14, when it comes to these areas that Christians disagree, some think and eat meat's okay, other things eating vegetables is the only way to go. Some consider every day alike, other consider some days more sacred than others. He says, don't judge your brother, but each one needs to be fully convinced in their own mind. You better be saying, I'm doing this because I believe God's word says so. And oh, and don't make it your job to change anybody else's view. Because if you believe that God has told you something and I come and tell you different, I'm in trouble. Be real careful. That's why many a time as we wrestle with certain issues, I'll say to people, can you look me in the eye and tell me that God has told you this? And if it doesn't disagree with his word, even though I may not agree with the decision, I'm going to support you because the most important thing is that you follow God. Now, I might not agree but that doesn't mean that it's wrong. Because if the scripture doesn't say, and you believe God spoke to you, you got my support. You got my support. Don't time I'll disagree is if the word's very clear. I'm going to read to you real quickly Ezekiel chapter 13, verses 17 through 23. And we're going to, in the 40, 15 minutes we have left, be able to cover, hopefully, I believe. And by the way, we're about to cover a very deep topic. I'm going to warn you right now. Ezekiel chapter 13, verses 17 through 23 says, And you, son of man, God speaking to Ezekiel, set your face against the daughters of your people. Now he's speaking to the women. Set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own hearts. Prophesy against them and say, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the women who sew magic bands upon all wrists and make veils for the heads of the persons of every stature in the hunt for souls. Will you hunt down souls belonging to my people and keep your own souls alive? You've profaned me among my people for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread, putting to death souls who should not die and keeping alive souls who should not live by your lying to my people who listen to lies. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm against your magic bands with which you hunt souls like birds, and I will tear them from your arms and I will let the souls whom you hunt go free like the souls, sorry, 
the souls like birds. Your veils also I will tear off and deliver my people out of your hand, and they shall be no more in your hand as prey. And you shall know that I am the Lord, because you have disheartened the righteous falsely, although I have not grieved him. And you have encouraged the wicked that he should not turn from his evil way to save his life. Therefore you shall no more see false visions nor practice divination. I will deliver my people out of your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord." And if you do an in-depth study, you'll find that actually God, through the prophet Isaiah, really speaks harshly to the women at a certain point. And through the prophet Amos as well, speaks harshly to the women in his judgment of the nation of Israel. And Ezekiel now does as well. But the difference in Ezekiel compared to Isaiah and Amos is this. In Ezekiel, we see that some of these women were being false prophets as well, not just men. We've always assumed that the false prophets were men, haven't we? But actually, there were false prophets who were women. And this gets into that whole big debate over the role for women and God's role. And, and I prayed about this, and I wrestled with whether or not I was supposed to do a study next week, the whole hour, on what the Scripture says about women's role in ministry. And whether or not we'd break from Ezekiel, do a study on that. But God confirmed in my heart last night that I'm just to give you the Reader's Digest version, buckle up. Because if you want to get a biblical understanding, you need to know what the whole of Scripture says. Unfortunately, there's a lot of false teaching when it comes to women's role in, in the church because people take a verse here or a verse there. And they build what they want from that verse. You need to know what the whole of Scripture says. Years ago, when I was in seminary in New Orleans, we would have chapel every day. Right after the morning classes, there would be chapel right around lunchtime. And then whenever we were in class, right before chapel time... We didn't even have to look at the schedule to see who was speaking, whether or not a woman or a man was going to be speaking. Because if there was a woman going to be speaking, there was always the same guy who would go stand in the courtyard right in front of the chapel where all the classrooms were around it. And he used to open his King James Bible and just read the same one verse over and over. I do not permit a woman to speak in the church. And that's all he kept doing. And, and people would go up and talk to him. And he would just keep yelling that verse over and over. We'd sit in class and go, there must be a lady speaking at chapel today. Because this guy's reading his one verse. But here's the thing. You're gonna build, you need to build your doctrine, correct doctrine, from the whole of Scripture. And you're going to find from the Scriptures that the Bible does not mean that a woman should never speak in the church. That passage was not what it's saying. The Scripture confirms that. Because in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, when a woman, listen, prophesies in church... She needs to do it with her head covered. That doesn't mean she wears a doily. It means she's to do it under the authority of the men. See, God had clearly stated throughout the Scripture that He had chosen that men were to be the ones in ultimate authority over the family and the, uh, the church. Men and women have different roles in the family. They have different roles in the church. But ultimately, even though women are given shepherding gifts, and women are to be shepherding people, and women have been given the ability to teach and to preach... The Bible says that they should not ever be the one who's the ultimate authority over the rest. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. People have said over the years, well, the only reason that uh, God, Jesus didn't choose men, sorry, choose women to be one of the 12 apostles is because the culture of his day would not allow him to do that. And I say to you, if you fall and pray to that teaching or that thinking, let me just say to you what you just said or believed. You have just believed that the almighty God was manipulated by the culture of his day. And folks, if we know Jesus well enough from the scriptures, he wasn't manipulated by the culture of his day. Remember, the culture of his day said, you don't go in Samaria. The culture of his day said, you don't talk to women. 
The culture of his day said, you don't tell a woman caught in the act of adultery, you just go on. I'm not going to condemn you. Jesus went against the culture of his day. But all throughout, the scripture says, even though women have the ability to teach and to preach and shepherd, they should never be given that ultimate role. Oh, by the way, ladies, this is a good thing for you to understand. Because actually, if you remember, what was the curse of sin that happened to Eve? Besides the increased pain in childbearing? Your desire is going to be for your husband. Now, we've a lot of times read that as like, I'm going to love him. No, no, no. That same word desire in Genesis 3 is the exact same word in Hebrew desire in chapter 4 when God comes to Cain when he's thinking about killing his brother. And he says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have mastery over you. In other words, it wants to control you. Because of the fall, women are going to want to be in charge. We call it nagging sometimes. But, but does that mean women can't speak? No. Does that mean women can't preach? No. Does that mean women can't teach? No. They're just not to be the ones who are in the authority, ultimately. But there's been confusion where we run to one extreme or the other. Let the whole of Scripture speak. The New Testament shows us that there were women in the New Testament church who were prophetesses. There was a time when the nation of Israel had no men that were willing to put on their big boy pants and lead the nation of Israel. And God said, Deborah, I'm going to have to use you. And she said, I even know how you've designed it, God. It's not supposed to be me. If you look at that whole story, she even goes to the men and says, look, when God gives us victory, the credit's going to go to a woman. That ain't going to look good for you. You guys really want to do this? The guys were all like, go ahead and lead. Go ahead and do it. Years ago, I had a chance of teaching 200 pastors in Thailand. And for a whole week at a Christian conference center, they came from all over Thailand to this Christian conference center. And I taught 200 pastors. What a lot of you have heard me maybe talk about that in the past. Many of you may not know, 80% of those pastors were women. I had a struggle because I know what the scripture says. But I also know that if anybody's going to see anything from the scripture, God has to open their eyes. And I was there to teach the principles of a God-centered church. But I had been telling them all along, because they would come up during the breaks and say, you seem to know a lot about the Bible. I would say, I tell you what, if you have any questions, there's going to be a box down here at the front. Just put your questions in the box. And on the last day of the conference, I will answer all the questions. Now, I was preaching through a translator. And the translator I had was a 20-something, 24-year-old uh, young lady who was just an amazing young lady in her walk with the Lord. She was able to translate for me from English to their language but she had a walk with the Lord, which was so awesome. And one of the questions that came up on Friday was, what is God's role for women in the church? And I knew that I was going to have to stand in front of 200 pastors, 80% of them women, and say, most of you shouldn't be in the pastoral role. Now, one of the reasons why that was happening in a lot of places was the men in, in Thailand wouldn't take leadership. But there were also, I would say, over half of the women in that room, it had been obvious to me by the end of the week, over half of the women in that room should never have been pastor, but they were doing it because they wanted to be in charge. What was interesting was, as I was trying to walk them through a scriptural study of this, and it's hard because I have to just speak quickly, she translates. I speak quickly a little more, she translates, and it's really slow. And I could see on their faces that they weren't getting it. And the lady whispered to me, she said, Jim, do you give me permission to just teach? 
I know where you're going, and I agree. Just let me answer this, answer this question. I said, thank you. Because in my mind, I was thinking, if they get mad, you said it, not me. But she then, I don't know what she said, but she stood there with the microphone and she preached. Oh, it was powerful. And I could see. And you watched the Holy Spirit bring understanding to the room. And when she was done, ladies came forward and resigned their pastorates. She was under my authority. She preached with her head covered. She preached with her head covered. That's what she did. She humbled herself and she said, if you'll give me permission. And I said, go for it. And listen, folks. Remember what Jesus said to the church in Thyatira? There's a woman in that church, Jezebel, who's been teaching you that sexual immorality is okay. I've given her opportunity to repent of her sins. And I'm going to judge her and all the people that she's led astray they won't repent and he says that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess so we have to understand God's paying attention don't all seek to be leaders don't think it's your job to tell everybody how it's supposed to be but if you do when God leads you to make sure that you're just showing them what the scripture says and if they understand it it's because God opened their eyes if they don't it's not your job to win the argument Christians have done so much damage over the years trying to be the one who gets people to understand something. With that said, in the four minutes that I have left, yeah, we did start a little bit late. Okay, in the five minutes that we have left, I told you at the beginning that what happened in the nation of Israel during that time when God was bringing a judgment was individuals were stepping up claiming to be speaking for God and saying, actually, that's not what God means. What he really means is this. And we're living in a day, folks, in which, as I already touched on in 2 Timothy 4, people are going to gather preachers. They're going to itch their ears. They tell them what they want to hear. And I'm not going to name names. I've been tempted to name names. But I've noticed in the scripture that Jude doesn't name names. He just trusts that God would help you. Here's what you watch out for. And he lets the Lord take it from there. Paul, I think, only named two people in all his dealing with false teachers. He only named two. The rest he just said, watch out for. Let's pay attention to. And I believe the spirit of God's job is to show you who to listen to and who not to listen to, what to pay attention to, what not to pay attention to. But let me give you one example of what I'm talking about. We live in a day in which the Bible has been very clear from the beginning that homosexuality is a sin. It's not any worse than any other kind of sin. There's all kinds of sin. And watch out for anybody that says, well, he can't judge me. I was born this way. No, we were all born that way. We were all born with a tendency to sin one way or another. Folks, I'm not going to try to get you in trouble with your wives, but guys, let's be honest. Don't we struggle with lust? Aren't we tempted to look at things we're not supposed to look at when it comes to the women of the opposite sex? Of course we are. Can we just say to our wives, hey, that's just the way God made me. It's okay. It doesn't work like that. That's all the homosexuals are doing. Yet at the same time, we have to make sure that we understand that God loves them and they wants them to know and we're not to just write them off because until the day of judgment there's opportunity to be saved as Jesus said to the woman who was actually sinning go and sin no more but he says I don't condemn you 
We're not to condemn those who are stuck in this lifestyle, but we have to also be real careful because now across this country, preachers and churches are rising up left and right and they're whitewashing it. And they're saying, God's okay with it. He's a God of love. He would never say this is wrong. And therefore, they are preaching things that aren't true. Why are they saying it? Why are they now all of a sudden out there saying, this is okay? They're doing it to gain favor. And they're jackals among ruins. They're not helping anybody if they tell them it's okay and God won't judge. And so folks, that's just one example. I could go on and on and on. And the sad thing is, in all my years of being in ministry, I've watched Christians, and I'm not going to judge whether they are or aren't, so I'm not going to even put this in quotes, but I've watched Christians who had a strong view of what God had to say about homosexuality all of a sudden flip their view when a family member or a close friend went down that road. And because they wrestled with that, they chose to say it's okay and to go away from what God's word had said. Folks, remember what God said to the false prophets? The ones who were saying, thus says the Lord, when God hadn't said, you're not going to be a leader among my people. And you won't be counted in the genealogy. And you won't enter into that land. So I just tell you, these days are going to get crazier, crazier, and crazier. Know the truth. Know the truth. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week.